0: those other methods is that there is no greater standard than God's word for us, right? I mean, that's God's revelation to us. All knowledge is in God. We've seen that. And it's only by God's revelation that we're able to know anything about anything. We need to recognize that the debate over origins or the debate on these different religious ideas, that those are worldview debates. And a worldview... We can define that a little more precisely than we have previously. A worldview is a network of presuppositions. Those are your most basic beliefs about reality. So a network of presuppositions untested by natural science and in light of which all experience is interpreted. And so when you understand the definition of a worldview, it should be immediately obvious why you can't use scientific evidence by itself alone, unaided unaided scientific evidence, to prove one worldview against another, because worldviews are untested by natural science, by their very definition. In fact, it is the Christian worldview that makes science possible. And so it would be ridiculous to rely upon the lesser thing to try and prove the greater thing. It occurred to me uh, just yesterday. I was thinking about this, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if a student went and complained? To the, they got the test results back, and they're looking at it, and they look, and they go up to their teacher, "Man, you you did terrible. You only got a C on this. I mean, you failed to anticipate my answer here, and here, and here. You got the wrong question here. You got the wrong question there. Wouldn't that be absurd?" It's the student who's being tested on his knowledge, not the teacher, right? It would be ridiculous to argue that they, you know, my answers are correct, it's just you got the wrong questions for some of them. I mean, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be silly? And so it is with people who try and use science, which relies upon God's Word, to then judge God's Word. Because if God's Word were false, then there would be no basis for uniformity in nature upon which all science depends. Or for, or for that matter, the, there would be no reason to trust that our senses are basically reliable. And science depends on that, too, because it depends on observation and experimentation, of course. And so I've been showing you that it's the Christian presuppositions, biblical presuppositions that make knowledge possible and we said that that's uh, we we saw hopefully that that's not just something that old dr lau came up with and threw out there it's actually a biblical principle that biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible secular presuppositions do not and therefore secularists must stand on biblical presuppositions in order to know anything about anything and of course they're being dreadfully inconsistent with they do that right but uh, it's not just my opinion that biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. The Bible tells us that. It tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to start to know anything, it begins with a reverential submission, fear of the Lord, and therefore his presuppositions. But the flip side is fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want to reject biblical presuppositions? The Bible says you're a fool. And it doesn't, it's not just using that in the sense of name calling. It's, it's using that to say your position, your, your resulting thought process will be absurd. It will be ridiculous. It will not lead to knowledge because all knowledge is deposited in Christ. The Bible tells us that in Colossians 2, 3. All the treasures, not some, not even most, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ. And then Paul goes on to explain a few verses later. He says, see to it no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And it's interesting the way that's worded in Greek as well. Rather, you know, see to it no one takes you captive. It's actually mugging. See see to it no one mugs you of these, of what? Well, he's just been talking about the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can be robbed of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why? By studying philosophy? doesn't say that. Some people think this verse means you shouldn't, it, philosophy is wicked and it's evil. And that's not what Paul is saying. Because, you see, he doesn't just say all philosophy is bad. He says, see to it that you are not mugged or taken captive through all philosophy. No, philosophy, and empty deception that is according to the tradition of men. It's worldly philosophy that Paul is warning us against. According to the elementary principles, the Greek word there, stoikion, means the basic building blocks. It is exactly what we would use for the word presuppositions. That's that's the meaning of that verse, Uh, the presuppositions of the world, rather than the philosophy, the presuppositions that are according to Christ. When you read that verse in its context, that's what he's talking about. We should have a philosophy, but our philosophy should be according to Christ. We should have the mind of Christ, the Bible tells us. Think like he thinks. Use his presuppositions. If you don't, you will be robbed of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So my argument for the Bible is that only the Bible provides what we call the preconditions for the intelligibility of man's experience and reasoning. Now, I'm probably not going to use that terminology when I'm uh, chatting with someone, but I want you to know it because it's, it's good to be aware of these things, especially when you go on and read Bonson and Vintil, which you should do. But uh, the preconditions, things that have to, conditions that have to be true in advance in order for knowledge to, po- to be possible. So preconditions for intelligibility, that is, for the world to make sense, for it to be intelligible. And those those would include things like laws of logic. Laws of logic would have to already exist in order for you to reason about anything, wouldn't they? Because you use them when you reason. And so they would have to exist and they would have to have the properties that they have. And we saw last week that the Bible makes sense of the existence and properties of laws of logic. And there is no other worldview that can do that. Any other worldview cannot make sense of the existence of laws of logic or why they have the properties that they have, or how we could know that they have those properties. The fact that they're universal and unchanging and so on. We saw that that goes back to the nature of God, because God is omnipresent and he is timeless, and so his thoughts don't change with time and so on. The uniformity of nature is another precondition of intelligibility. The idea that there are patterns in nature to be discovered, that there's a basic underlying orderliness to nature, and that stems from the fact that God upholds the universe in a consistent fashion most of the time, for our benefit, and he has promised that in places like Genesis 822. And so that for those, even for those well-meaning Christians who say, well, I don't take Genesis as literal history, you can't have that precondition of intelligibility then. You're left standing on nothing. You're in the same position as the unbeliever. You have, you on the one hand have confidence in the methods of science, but then you don't have any rational foundation for science itself. And we talked about morality as well, by which we have knowledge of right and wrong. And so these are some those are some of the pillars that we stand on to have knowledge. And there are others. Reliability of senses, reliability of memory, uh, human dignity and freedom, and so on. These are all things that we stand on to have knowledge and to make sense of the universe. And yet these are based solidly on God's word. Now the unbeliever does stand on these things, but he says he rejects God's word. And so his position is irrational. He doesn't have a good basis For his belief, he's being arbitrary. And so we've covered these things. What I want to do now is go on and talk about how to, how to apply this. Okay. So we've got some of the theory down. I want to give you a little bit of application today. I was going to talk about the theology of it today, but I'll, I'll push that to next week because I think we need to, there's a certain order to these things for, for to make the most sense. And the, uh, the strategy I want to share with you today, it's called the don't, I call it the don't answer answer strategy. And this is a way to, when you're interacting with someone who is not a believer, or for that matter, a Christian who's not really thinking consistently. This is a a good way of exposing inconsistency. It's a good way of exposing the errors of any worldview that dares to challenge God. It's a biblical strategy for defending the faith. It's based on Scripture. And I want to show you this. Uh, It's based on Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And again, when the Bible uses the term fool, it's not engaging in name-calling. It's not just saying, well, you're just a moron. It's not doing that. It's using that term to describe someone who is dense, someone who is perhaps very intelligent, but who refuses to use his brain in the way that God has intended and therefore has a silly worldview, an absurd way of thinking. That's what the Bible means when it uses that term fool. And the Bible here tells us we're not to accept the fool's standard. We're not to answer him according to his folly. Otherwise... We'd be like him. And and so, uh, how do we illustrate this? My friend uh, Dan Letha came up with a brilliant way of illustrating this without. Because I said, "How are you going to illustrate this without poking fun at people?" Right. So he said, "Well, let's do it with a, uh, let's do it with a jester outfit." There. Right. That's that represents the fool, somebody who's who's being silly. He might be an intelligent person, but he's acting very silly because his beliefs are contrary to what the Bible teaches. Now, how are we going to answer this person? who is acting foolishly. Suppose he says, let's leave the Bible out of the discussion, right? We can talk about origins, but I don't believe the Bible, so you can't use the Bible. Mm. How do we respond to that? If we Now, you know what most Christians would do? They'd say, well, yeah, okay. I mean, if you don't believe the Bible, I guess we can leave the Bible out of the discussion. We'll use these other standards to show you biblical creation, in which case we've become the fool as well. We don't want to embrace the standard of the unbeliever, or we would be like him. There's a whole movement that tries to defend the faith in this way. And uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I'm going to launch into it anyway, because it's what I'm saying is biblical. It is. The intelligent design movement is, uh, and, I, and I like some of the stuff they put out. Don't get me wrong. I like some of the stuff they do, but their strategy is we'll answer the fool according to his folly. We'll go ahead and say, yes, we'll just leave the Bible out of the discussion and we'll show you that evolution can't happen spontaneously or something like that. And of course, even if they were successful that doesn't, you know, just, just failing to believe in evolution doesn't get you saved, right? We want people to be saved. That's why I bring the whole Bible into it, and I think that's the best way to do it. Uh, but, but again, um, I, if, you, if you say, yes, let's leave the Bible out of the discussion, well, you've just left out the foundational basis for all knowledge. In which case, I, I would say you've become foolish as well, right? If somebody says, I don't believe the Bible, I'm thinking, well, that's your problem, right? I'm not going to be foolish just because you're being foolish, if somebody says, I don't believe in words, would you say, well, I guess I can't use words. No, you say, well, that's foolish. I'm not going to accept that standard. Now, the next verse, the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. You say, what's going on there? Is that a contradiction? No, because the sense is different. On the one hand, we shouldn't answer a fool according to his folly in the sense of actually embracing his standard and therefore becoming like him. On the other hand, we should answer the fool according to his folly in the sense of of hypothetically Standing on his worldview for the sake of showing the absurdity so that he can't be wise in his own eyes. Okay, so you do want to, you do want to deal with his worldview and do that internal critique and show that it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. That way he can't be wise in his own eyes and say, well yeah, I really, I really got away with something there, right? So let's say somebody comes to you and says, there are no absolutes. We can talk about these issues, but you can't use any absolutes because there are no absolutes. Now wouldn't that be ridiculous to embrace that standard? That's an absurd standard. And so what am I going to say? Am I going to jump and say, okay, I guess I can't use absolutes? No, I'm going to say, no, I don't, I don't accept your standard that there are no absolutes. But hypothetically, if there were no absolutes, you couldn't say there were no absolutes. You just use an absolute statement. You see how ridiculous that is? You see, I'm temporarily standing on his worldview just for the sake of hypothesis to show that it's self-refuting. And what's he going to say now? Hopefully he realizes now the absurdity of his own position. This is a very powerful strategy, which is why the Lord inscribed it in Scripture for us. And by the way, Jesus used this strategy masterfully in his earthly ministry. If you want to see somebody using the strategy right, look at Jesus as as your example. Maybe we'll do some of that, that next week, but it's powerful. He knew how to use this. Of course, he inspired it in the first place, so that makes sense. Somebody says, I don't believe in words. Prove to me that creation is true without using words, because I don't believe in words. Wouldn't that be strange? Now, what would most people do? Well, yeah, I guess if you don't believe in words, I can't use words. I'll have to use charades or something. I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's going to be tough. No, that's uh, that would be silly. We want to use the don't answer answer strategy to reveal the absurdity of the standard. So the don't answer part is going to be something like this. You're going to say, I don't accept your belief that words don't exist. Now, you may not have to explicitly state it. It might be obvious in what comes next. But you're going to make it clear, I don't embrace your standard. I'm not going to stand here and be quiet just because you don't you claim you don't believe in words, right? And then you're going to do the answer part. But hypothetically, if words didn't exist, you couldn't argue anyway. The fact that you're able to make your case demonstrates that your case is wrong. You just used words to tell me that you don't believe in words. How, how does that make any sense? Now, what's he going to say at this point? After I've done that, what's he going to say? If he says nothing, then my point stands unrefuted. I win. But if he says anything, he proves that words exist because he's got to use words to do it. So he proves my point. I win again. I'm going to win this debate, right? I mean, <laughs> he might not be persuaded of that, but it's not my job to persuade him. That's up to God as he wills. My job is to make a defense, and I've just given a good one because I've done it according to the biblical formula. Now, some people, uh, I- I've never heard anybody claim this, that words don't exist. But I have heard people claim that words have no meaning. There's a movement called the deconstructionists that say every reading is a misreading, right? And you can't ever get to the author's intention. And they write wonderful books on this topic, <laughs> which if they're right, I could never understand, right? I mean, it makes, it makes no sense, you see. And so what you want to learn to do is y- you never embrace their standard, but you do an internal critique to show the absurdity of it. And so never, here's the way to think of it, never put on the suit, never put on the outfit, never become like the fool and actually embrace his standard, but do reflect his standard back to him for the sake of argument so that he can see the absurdity of it. Now, let me give you a few more realistic examples. Now, somebody says, I believe in naturalism. Nature is all that there is, just matter and energy. There's no God. Show me logically how the earth could be 6,000 years old then. And, you know, our, we, we tend to jump to the scientific evidence, and, of course, it's fine to bring, bring that up. But you ultimately want to get to the don't answer, answer strategy. See, I hope you zoomed in on two words. Naturalism, nature's all that there is, everything's matter and energy, and logically, logic, wait a minute, laws of logic are not matter and energy. Right? They're conceptual. And so if the only thing that exists is matter and energy, you can't have logic. Now I'm going to use the don't answer, answer strategy to expose that. I'm going to say, first of all, I don't accept your belief in naturalism, that nature's all that there is. I believe in things that are, that are non-physical, like thoughts, concepts, and for that matter, God is non-physical. But hypothetically, if naturalism were true, it would be impossible to prove anything since there couldn't be any laws of logic. Right? And so your, 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 your question is self-refuting. It doesn't make any sense. Somebody says, all the science is on the side of evolution. Genetic similarities, fossils, and so on are what we would expect. Hmm. Now, it'd be fine, again, to bring up some specific examples. I'm not against the use of evidence. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. I'm all for that. But we need to do this in the right way and answer according to the the don't answer answer strategy. First of all, I don't accept your interpretation of that evidence. I don't accept your claim that all the evidence is on the side of evolution. In fact, in my worldview, evidence... I I understand that evidence is always interpreted. And uh, frankly... Uh, all the evidence makes sense in light of creation, as I understand it. But then the answer part: hypothetically, if evolution were true, science would be impossible because there'd be no basis for uniformity of nature. You, you want to use the methods of science, but science is a Christian conception. It is. Now, that's not to say you have to profess you have to profess Christianity to do science, but it does mean that Christianity has to be true for science to be possible. In order, because God has to uphold the universe in a consistent way, which is what He promises in Genesis eight twenty two, and th- and throughout the Scripture we know God doesn't lie and He's beyond time and so on. The Bible has to be true for science to make sense. And so when somebody says, well, you know, all the, there's all this evidence for evolution. Uh, first of all, I'm going to say, can you name some? And usually they can't. By the way, they've just been told that, or they'll say, well, fossils, and they'll say, well, how do you think fossils prove evolution? And which fossils specifically? And at that point, their face kind of goes blank, and they realize they don't have any logical reason to believe what they believe. They've been told it, and they believe it on that basis alone. But if somebody asks me, what evidence do you have for creation? What evidence is there for creation? I'm going to say, as a presuppositionalist, all of it. Because you couldn't make sense of any evidence if biblical creation weren't true. When you squeeze the bottom of the toothpaste and you expect the paste to come out the top, you're relying on uniformity of nature. Because that's what, that's the way it's worked in the past. And you would have no basis for that apart from Genesis 822 and other passages that indicate that God upholds the universe in a consistent way. How about this one? Somebody says, you can't take the Bible seriously. It's full of contradictions. Have you heard people claim that? There was a, there's a list floating around on the internet of, uh, 439 alleged contradictions in the Bible. And I thought, this is just too good. I'm going to go through it. And so I went through the list and rebutted each one, and that will be my next book. And I hope you'll pick that up and read it. But uh, anyway, uh, be, and, and I did that for the sake of answering the fool according to his folly so he can't be wise in his own eyes. But you want to do both parts of this, right? You want to say, first of all, I don't accept your claim that the Bible has contradictions. In my view, the Bible is the word of God. God doesn't deny himself. Therefore, you can't have contradictions in the Bible. In fact, it's because God exists that we have a law of non-contradiction. Because God doesn't deny himself. But then, then you need to want to do the answer part. And this is a question most Christians don't think to ask. Hypothetically, if the Bible did have contradictions, why in your worldview would that be wrong? There's a question most people don't think to ask. Because we just take it for granted that contradictions, you can't have two contradictory statements both true. But that's a Christian principle. It's because all truth is in God and God doesn't deny himself that two truths can never contradict. You see, that's a Christian principle. But how does he know that two contradictions can never both be true at the same time? How does he know that, apart from Scripture? Because he claims he rejects the Bible, you see. He has no basis for a law of non-contradiction, in which case, why is he complaining that the Bible allegedly has contradictions? That shouldn't bother him if he were not thinking in a Christian fashion, you see. He might say, well, I've never seen a true contradiction, and I'm going to say, I've never seen Antarctica. Does that mean it doesn't exist? You can't argue that way. He's trying to make a universal claim, but he has no basis for it. Somebody says, it's wrong to teach creation. You're lying to children. You teach create, you want to teach creation? You homeschoolers, you want to teach creation to your kids? That's wrong. What's wrong with you? Well, you want to use the don't answer answer strategy. First of all, I don't accept that teaching creation is lying. Creation is true. I'd be happy to show you some of the science and how it confirms that. We can talk about those things. But hypothetically, here's the answer part. If it were true, if evolution were true, why in your worldview would it be wrong to lie to children? If, ch- in your worldview, if evolution's true and children are just chemical accidents, why should it be wrong to lie to them? Right? Was, well, everybody knows it's wrong to lie to children. Well, yeah, that's because we're made in the image of God, and children are made in the image of God, and God has told us, a- God wants us to be truthful and so on. I understand that, and the Christian worldview, but you claim to deny the Christian worldview. You claim that these are just rearranged pond scum. Right, they're just chemical accidents. Now, why should I care about lying to a chemical accident? Would you be concerned if I went out to a can of motor oil in my garage and lied to it? Would that be wrong? It's just chemistry, right? Especially if it benefits my survival value. The Christian God is not good. He slaughters innocent children. Look at that Old Testament God going out there and wiping out all society. You know, these 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 societies, and in many cases, all the women and the children even slaughtered them as well. He's not good. Oh, you want to make a moral claim? Interesting. Hmm. Use the don't answer, answer strategy to expose the fact that they have no basis for morality. First of all, God is good. I I reject your claim that God is not good. Because you see, in my worldview, God is the standard of goodness. Something is good if it follows from the character of God. Something is good if it's something God commends and approves of. And so to say God is not good is like saying Dr. Lyle is not very Dr. Lyle-ish. That would make no sense, right? God is as good as he can be because he's fully God. But you want to talk about, you know, innocent children and things like that? Those are moral words. And so, hypothetically, apart from God, how can you determine what is good and who are innocent? You just used moral words, words that make no sense apart from the Christian worldview. How can you even account for those things? And they're not going to be able to answer that. See, th- that claim, Let me back up, that claim is one that a lot of Christians, you know, they get a little squeamish when people ask that because they don't know how to answer it. But if you understand presuppositional apologetics, you realize when they ask that question, you've won the debate. Because all you got to do is point out that they're relying on Christian principles to get their conception of morality to then try and argue against the Bible. Well, let's try and streamline this into a general apologetic procedure then. This is my procedure. In terms of when I'm debating with someone, I'm trying to reason with them. I'm trying to persuade them in as much as is humanly possible, knowing that ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one that brings persuasion. But I'm trying to make a good defense of the faith. There are two there are two things that I try to keep in my mind. And of course, different people divide this up different ways. I like to think of it there's one cake and you can divide it into five pieces or three or whatever. I divide it into two. Uh I think of it uh, this is this is to me what apologetics is. It's presenting the Christian worldview and doing an internal critique of the unbeliever's worldview. That's basically it. Uh, anything that I do when I'm conversing with someone is to be toward this goal. Now, sometimes I'll have to ask them questions to better understand their worldview so that I can then do an internal critique. That's fine. But everything I do is to this end. I'm presenting the Christian worldview. That's, that's a part of apologetics. You will have to educate the person that you're, you're speaking with. You will. Uh, even those who say, well, I grew up in the church... But then later, you know, I got all educated and smart, and I realized all that Christianity stuff, that's just fairy tales. More likely than not, they don't really understand the Christian worldview. Um, I'm sorry, but a lot of churches don't do a good job of teaching the Christian worldview. That's just the way it is. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, just keep in mind, you're going to have to teach them the Christian worldview. And then, of course, you're going you're to critique their worldview. And you're going to do that by an internal critique. You're going to temporarily stand on it, just for the sake of hypothesis, not that you actually embrace it but you're going to temporarily accept it to show that it blows itself up on its own terms. And we've already seen how to do that. And you can see this really goes along well with the don't answer, answer strategy, doesn't it? Because the don't answer part means you don't answer them according to their worldview, which means you are answering them according to the Christian worldview. You're presenting the Christian worldview. And then when you do the answer part, you're refuting them so that they can't be wise in their own eyes. You're doing the internal critique part. So it goes along well with that. And, of course, these are both biblical, right? The Bible tells us we're to present the Christian worldview. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We're to make disciples of all nations. That involves education, teaching them about what uh, Christ has taught us. And we're to correct those. In gentleness, we're to correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. I love this verse because in my flesh I hate it. And it, it uh, th- this is an interesting verse right here because, uh, it, somebody who comes, who, especially people who are kind of young in the, in the faith, th- this bothers them. Th- the fact that God has to grant people repentance is something that really rubs my flesh the wrong way because I want to think, well, you know, it, yeah, granted God saved me, but I at least, I, I at least had the good sense to repent, right? That's, that's me. Uh, this verse indicates that actually That's something that God gave me. You would not even repent unless God gave you the ability to repent. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, it's something that it makes us realize how utterly helpless we are. We really are. And it's not that I lack the physical ability to repent. It's just that I never would because in my sinful state, I I hated God and it had nothing to do with him. And unless God changed my heart, I'd still be in that state today. But we are to correct those who are in opposition, which means we're going to do that internal critique of their worldview. And if perhaps... God may grant them repentance. He may not. If you did a good job defending the Christian position, you should walk away happy, regardless of what God chooses to do with that person. You've done what God called you to do. You know, our message is not just a message of life. It's a message of death, too. God has called us to be the communicators that that we're to tell people about his wrath as well. And, of course, we want people to be saved, but either way, we're to be God's messengers and get that message out. And of course we're to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing, uh, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so don't let any thoughts escape. Don't let any, you know, the unbeliever is out there and he's making all these statements that are, that are contrary to the Christian worldview. You need to, you need to bring those into obedience to Christ. Do that internal critique. Now I realize you have to be strategic because you don't have an unlimited amount of time. And so when somebody is spouting all this nonsense, Right, I, I, I may not have time to do a point-by-point point rebuttal of everything they say. I'm going to hit the main one and deal with that first, and then, then. But you know, at the same time, I'm not going to let them get away with something, if you see what I'm saying, because we want to bring every thought captive into obedience in Christ. And by the way, that starts with us. That starts in our own mind, because uh, you know, do, do you have runaway thoughts? Do you have thoughts sometimes throughout the day that are not glorifying to God? Because I got to tell you, I haven't totally arrived yet, and it's something that uh, you know. You look at that verse: every thought. Is everything I think glorifying to God? Is it an obedience to Christ? And that's something that we really uh, need to strive for. When doing the internal critique, there are three things I look for. So I'm kind of breaking this down now. I call it the AIP test. And the good news is you've already learned one of these. <laughs> and the one you've already I've already shared with you is the hard one. It's number three. The other two are pretty easy. Uh, three things to look for when I'm doing that internal critique. Right, I'm presenting the Christian worldview. I'm showing how it makes sense, and then I'm doing an internal critique of the unbeliever's worldview, showing that it is arbitrary, meaning it doesn't, you know, isn't, he doesn't have a good reason for what he believes. It's inconsistent, meaning on the one hand he believes this, on the other hand he believes the opposite, and he's, he's not he's not thinking in a consistent fashion. And third, that the unbelieving worldview fails to make sense of the preconditions of intelligibility, things like laws of logic, morality, and uniformity. The the secular worldview or any non-Christian worldview cannot make sense of those things. Why arbitrary? Why should we not be arbitrary? Well, the the very question presupposes that we ought to have a reason for the things that we believe. Isn't that true? You can be, arbitrary just means you don't have a a good reason, okay? And when it comes to picking what color shirt you want to wear, you're perfectly free to be arbitrary. But when it comes to beliefs, you should have a good reason for what you believe. Why? Because beliefs have consequences. If you decide, I'm just not going to believe in gravity, that's probably not going to end up well for you, right? That's not going to go well. Beliefs have consequences, so we better make sure that we have a good, a good reason or reasons for the things that we believe. If somebody comes and says, I believe such and such and such, and so should you, the natural question I'm going to ask is, why? Why do you believe that? Why should I? And if he says, well, that's just what I believe, then I'm going to say, well, see ya, right? I don't, I don't really care to, to believe that, because you don't have a good reason for it. People tend to be very arbitrary, especially when it comes to religious issues. That's something where people feel free to be arbitrary, I guess because it's not immediately testable, right? Life after death, well, here's what I believe happens when you die. Why do you believe that? Oh, I just do. Well, that's irrational. <laughs> you know, try, that, you know, try that with your car. I don't think cars need fuel. Eh, let me know how that works out for you. It'll work for a little while, and then it won't, right? Inconsistent. Why should we not be inconsistent? Because two inconsistent things can't both be true, right? Two things that are contrary to each other can't both be true. And so if you believe in two things that are inconsistent, one of them is wrong. And so that is a symptom of a fallacious worldview, one that's inconsistent with itself. And of course we've already talked about the preconditions of intelligibility and how only the Christian worldview makes sense of those. And so I'm standing on my Christian worldview, I'm presenting it, and I'm inviting the unbeliever to come and stand on it. Come over here and join us on Christianity. You'll see that Christianity is not arbitrary. I have a very good reason for the things that I believe. I believe my senses are basically reliable and so on because God made them. And You see, it makes sense. The Christian worldview is self-consistent. We have concepts of justice but also of mercy and those make sense in light of the cross and so on. And and, uh, the Christian worldview makes sense of the preconditions of intelligibility but the secular worldview, none of those. It's arbitrary. They believe things for no particular reason. They're inconsistent. And of course, they can't make sense of the preconditions of intelligibility. So let me give you some real world examples now. These are actual emails that came in. This is actually when I was working for our sister ministry, Answers in Genesis. And uh, these are some of the emails that we would get on a... And I still get these kind of emails on a daily basis. Let's apply this kind of thinking to these. So somebody says, When are you going to accept science and stop trying to create a new dark age for humanity? Okay, because we're teaching creation, right? And, of course... Uh, Oh, science. You want to talk about science. Okay, but tell me, how do you have science apart from the Christian worldview? Where do you get your conception of uniformity in nature? It might surprise you to learn that the secularist David Hume was reduced to utter skepticism on that very issue. He could not account for uniformity of nature from a secular point of view. And he was an expert on that. He was a philosopher who, whose expertise was in epistemology. Start And stop trying to create a dark age a new dark age for humanity. Well, as a matter of historical fact, it was Christianity that brought humanity out of the dark age, right? I mean, the Renaissance, and the, it, those, those were primarily Christian thinking. Folks like Kepler and and Newton who who based their thinking on the Bible and therefore the universe ought to be orderly and so we would expect to find patterns in it. Science is based on that. And so it's, it's funny because the person who believes in evolution is the one who has no basis for science or scientific evidence or, for that matter, Would, would want to, would be concerned about humanity as if humanity were just, were more than just rearranged ponds come, right? And so when they say, when are you going to accept science? I'm trying to think, well, that's just what I was thinking about you. Right? Your position is so stiff. Yours isn't? Hmm. Your position is so stiff that if everyone were like you, we'd still be without cars, computers, mathematics, chemistry, geology, archaeology, and any other science. Excuse me, which of those are not based on uniformity of nature, which is based on scripture? All of them are based on that, aren't they? None of those could exist apart from the Christian worldview, which is why the founding fathers of most of those fields were Christians, as a matter of historical fact. And by the way, listing a long list of things like that to try and persuade people is a logical fallacy called elephant hurling. And uh, it may sound very impressive, but there's, there's no logical argument there, right? Has this person given any evidence of evolution? None. They've just assumed it and started mocking us for not accepting their belief. I uh, hope you rethink your position and someday humanity can walk together towards progress and prosperity and knowledge. <laughs> well, if we're just rearranged pond scum, why would you care about the direction of humanity, right? Who cares? This person says, your denial of basic science will in the long run discredit you and your cause. Uh, excuse me, who's denying science? It's not me. I'm a Christian. I embrace science because it's biblical. What about you? Why do you you believe that science has any merit? If the universe is just chance, why would you expect it to obey scientific laws? He says the empirical evidence is available for all to consider. Now there you're dealing with somebody who does not understand worldviews, right? Because they're thinking, well, you know, the evidence speaks for itself. No, it doesn't. If evidence speaks, run, because it shouldn't do that, right? (laughs) Evidence is interpreted, and people speak but not the evidence. Uh, and so I'm going to have to point that out. And of course, I might, I might uh, try to provoke the person a little bit and say, well, yeah, the evidence is, is available for all to consider, so why aren't you a creationist? Right? I mean, uh, because we can interpret evidence, that's, that only makes sense in a Christian worldview, where my mind is rational, having been made in God's image, and so on. He says, your message is akin to asking us to believe the world is flat. The Bible says it's round in Isaiah 40, 22, in Job 26, 10. But anyway... Um, or that the sun revolves about the earth, despite overwhelming empirical evidence to the contrary. None of which he lists. Could you please share with me some of this empirical evidence (laughs) for evolution? And, of course, they never do that. Uh, How can you honestly deny science and be so ignorant to the obvious truth about our beginnings? That's just what I was thinking about you, sir, with all respect. That's just what I was thinking about you. I pray that you'll have an epiphany. I pray to whom? Now, this person might believe in God, but they've obviously rejected the biblical God. So how do they know their God answers prayer? How do you know your God answers prayer, Dr. Lyle? Because he tells me that in his word. He's revealed that to, him, to me. And Stop misleading people to believe in nonsense and lies. Well, again, that's kind of what you're doing, isn't it? You're the one telling people they're just rearranged pawn scum. And in any case, if people were just rearranged pawn scum, why would you care about lying to them? It just makes no sense. You're ultimately going to turn people off to God. If anyone has half a brain, they're going to look to science for truth. But science is based on the Christian worldview. And by the way, does, does science is science have the authority over all truth? Can science answer questions about history? Can Can you do an experiment in a lab and find out what happened a million years ago? Well, no, right. Uh, or, or math, certain mathematical claims, you can you can add up in math. You can add up an infinite number of things and get an answer. But you can never do that scientifically because you don't have the time to add an infinite number of things, right? Science is one area, is it's one tool that God has given us to answer certain kinds of truth claims, but it, it's it's not able to answer other types of truth claims. Uh, and then the you know this old stories written by goat herders. Well, if they'd done any homework, they'd know that even secular archaeologists go to the Bible when they want to know where to dig because it's right and it gives them correct information. Even educated critics know that the Bible is historically accurate. I like this one. It's my favorite. Get over your childish, self-pacifying beliefs and deal with the fact the world is senseless. (laughs) If the world is senseless, who cares what I believe, right? If it's really senseless, why would you be concerned about that? If, perchance, there is a God and a reason behind this madness, they certainly will not be found in a book as flawed and disgusting as the Bible. Well, how do you know that? You just told me the world's senseless, so how do you know anything about anything, right? Right? And flawed and disgusting. By what standard, sir? It's just, well, you don't, I don't personally like that. Therefore, it's not true. I don't like anchovies on a pizza. Therefore, they don't exist. Does that make sense? Unless you promote slavery, misogyny, con- condemnation of billions of people to eternal torment. Uh, excuse me, sir. So you're saying that these things are morally wrong. Is that what you're saying? Tell me, what is your basis for morality? How can you have objective right and wrong apart from the Christian worldview? The claim that T-Rex was, was a vegetarian prior to the fall is so absurd that it scarcely deserves commentary. Then why did you comment on it? That's just, I'm just asking. <laughs> you see how you can show inconsistency in their thinking and arbitrariness and the failure to provide these preconditions of intelligibility? There's a lot more I could say about that, but I want to move on. I do want to talk briefly about the place of science in apologetics. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people, they hear these, They hear, or they read a book on presuppositional apologetics and there's not a lot of science in it and they think, well maybe it's wrong to use evidence. That's not at all my position. I think that science is valuable in apologetics debates. But since science, the method of science, is based on the truth of the Christian worldview, it would be ridiculous to try and use science as a greater standard than the Bible by which you can then test the Bible. You see what I'm saying? And again, it's like that student who tries to correct their teacher for asking the wrong questions. That's not the way that uh, that would be done. But I think there are appropriate uses of science. I'm going to give you four. There are probably more than four, but just these are things that I, when I'm dialoguing with my unbelieving friends, uh, that I like to use to confirm the Christian worldview, right? To confirm that, yes, indeed, science does line up with creation. Yes, we'd expect to find fossils all over the world if there was a worldwide flood, and that's exactly what we find. That's encouraging to believers, and I think it, and it kind of wakes unbelievers up so that they can see that there there is evidence out there that confirms scripture. They need to see that. To explain the idea of worldviews, uh, unbelievers have been taught, this is the way you look at fossils. Okay, and so we need to say actually there's another way you can look at them. In fact, the biblical way makes sense. Instead of them being deposited over hundreds of millions of years, most of them were deposited uh, within a year, with a few afterwards, during that flood year. That's what we'd expect. To expose arbitrariness and inconsistency, Right, and then to illustrate the preconditions of intelligibility of science. And so these are just four appropriate uses of science. There are probably many more, but the way I'm going to put it is this. Any use of science that is honest, faithful to Scripture, and does not pretend that scientific evidence is somehow superior or in a position to judge the Scripture is acceptable, in my view. So it's not about whether or not you should use science. It's how are you going to use it. If you're going to say there's this standard that's greater than Scripture and I'm using that standard to judge the Bible, I think that's inappropriate. And I'll talk about that next week when we go through and we see what does the Bible have to say about apologetic method and so on. A few more minutes or wrap it up? (laughs) There's a lot more I want to say, but I don't know how much more. Let's just real quick here. I want want to deal with one objection to presuppositional apologetics, and maybe we'll get back to do more of this uh, next week. But um, we did get a little late start today. That's why I'm going a little bit late. It's like original sin. It you know, affects everybody that comes afterwards, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, objections to the presuppositional. One that I want to hit is that this idea that it's it, that it's fallacious because it's circular. That presuppositional apologetics simply says the Bible's true because it's true, and and that doesn't really prove anything. And even William Lane Craig has said, you know, presupposition is guilty of a logical howler. It commits the informal fallacy of petitio principi or begging the question for its advocates presupposing the truth of Christian theism. In order to prove Christian theism, it's difficult to imagine how anyone could, with a straight face, think to show theism to be true by reasoning God exists, therefore God exists. Now, of course, the problem with that is that that is a straw man argument. William Lane Craig has not represented the presuppositional position accurately, which tells me he has not done his homework on this issue. He's not educated on this issue at all. Either that or he's dishonest. And I'd, I'd hope to believe it's the former rather than the latter. But the, my, my argument has never been God exists, therefore God exists. That would be silly. That would be a vicious circle, and it wouldn't prove anything. My argument's quite different. My argument is that God exists because it's the necessary precondition for anything to be intelligible. Now is there a degree of circularity to that? There is, but it's not a vicious circle. So here's my here's my point. Some degree of circular reasoning is unavoidable when dealing with an ultimate standard, and second, it's not a vicious circle. Okay? So let's let's expand on those. Some degree of circular reasoning is unavoidable. The unbeliever must also reason in a circle. Do you realize that when you're defending your ultimate claim, your ultimate standard, you must reason in a somewhat circular fashion, because you can't appeal to a greater standard to defend it, you see. The Bible indicates that we must start with God in order to know anything. And so, of course, we're going to have to start with the Bible, and then we're going to come back and see that, yes, the Bible makes knowledge possible. It does circle. But the the unbeliever believes that he's capable of determining truth apart from God, but how does he know that? You see, he's already assumed the Bible's wrong. He's just got a different starting point. But he, he's, he reasons it in the same circular fashion, right? He says, "He says the Bible's not the ultimate standard. My mind is. Therefore, the Bible's not true because it says it's the ultimate standard and I know my mind is. But that's a circular argument. How do you know that something is true? P, let's say P is the claim that Mars has two moons, which it does. How do you know that's true? Well, that follows from another belief, right? Q, because I saw them in my telescope. How do you know you saw them in your telescope? Because my senses are basically reliable. How do you know your senses are basically reliable? Well, because the Bible tells me that. Uh, now, how do you know the Bible's true? You see, claims go back like that, don't they? And so, ultimately, it'll terminate in an ultimate standard. And then I'm going to ask, how do you know your ultimate standard is true? Now, if you say, well, it follows from T, then S is not your ultimate standard, is it? T is. And so, how do you know that's your, how do you know that's true? Now, it, you can't appeal to a greater standard because then it wouldn't be ultimate. You can't go on forever because you can't know an infinite number of things. And so this this chain of reasoning has to stop at some point because you're finite. So it seems to me that the only way... I mean, you you could say, well, maybe T is proved by S, but that wouldn't work because S rests on the truth of T, you see. It's only true if T is, and so that's not going to work. Or you could say, well, I'm just going to assume T, but then you don't really know it, right? That's fideism. It seems to me the only alternative to this is that T must prove itself. It must prove itself. And that involves a degree of circularity, doesn't it? And since the Bible is the ultimate standard, there is no greater by which we we can prove it. And so it seems to me that circular reasoning is not always fallacious. I'm not just saying the Bible is true because it's true. I'm saying the Bible is true because it makes knowledge possible. And that truth is itself contained in the Bible, Proverbs 1, 7 and others. But uh, even God uses circular reasoning, folks. You understand that? Hebrews 6.16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. How do you know I'm going to keep my word? Because I swear by this. I swear by something greater than me. What does God do? Hebrews 6.13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God appeals to himself as his own ultimate standard because there is no other. Now, William Lane Craig might have a problem with that, but he's welcome to take it up with God. I don't have a problem with that. There is no greater standard than God, so he's going to have to appeal to himself as the ultimate standard. So you see, my my claim is that it's not merely a vicious circle. I'm not just saying God exists because God exists. I'm saying the Bible says that there's no other standard than God's word that will make truth possible, and we experience that in our everyday experiences.